The first Bible reading is from Exodus chapter 12. You'll find it on page 33 in the Church Bibles. Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 28. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. The second Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 26, page 808 in the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 to 30. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, what do you want us, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord? Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl will, with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then, Jesus, uh, then Judas, sorry, the one who would betray him said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi? Jesus answered, you have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, 
they went out to the Mount of Olives. The third reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, page 930 in the Church Bibles. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 26. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Sarah, for all those readings for us. Uh, Last week I told you about my lifelong love of cricket. Uh, This evening I'm taking the risk of making you think that I only ever talk about sport uh, because I want to tell you about a friend of mine from the soccer team that I played in when I was training for ministry. Tim and I got on well. We enjoyed playing soccer together. We soon became friends both uh, on the field but also uh, off the field. We'd often uh, head to Red Rooster for dinner after training, the diet of champions. Tim told me about his interest in spirituality. He'd had some really strange spiritual experiences, but he'd never been to church or known much about Jesus. So one day I invited him. And so there we are at church. It's Tim's first time and and everything's new. He's never prayed before. He's never sung a song of praise or heard a sermon. So I'm sitting next to him and just trying to offer a few pointers along the way, help him follow what's going on. Then all of a sudden, towards the end of the service, uh, the minister starts saying the words for the Lord's Supper. And then everyone's lining up and and going up the front and Tim turns to me and says, what's going on? What do I do now? It's a great question, isn't it? What's going on? Maybe that's your question too today. What's going on with the Lord's Supper? Or some call it Holy Communion or, or the Eucharist. Just different names for the same thing. I imagine we've each had different experiences of the Lord's Supper. You might have grown up in a more traditional church where it was quite a formal and solemn affair. Maybe it was treated as like the most significant thing that happened at church each week. Or your church background, it might have been more casual. 
and relax or, or just kind of very occasional. You didn't do it often. Some of us didn't grow up in churches at, at all. Perhaps you're in Tim's situation. Maybe you're here for the first time and thinking, well, what, what is this all about? It's, it's a bit of a mystery. And if that's you, you're in good company because the Lord's Supper has always been mysterious. Uh, even from the earliest days of Christianity, when they first celebrated the Lord's Supper in those first few decades after Jesus' death, it was actually a much more secret affair. Uh, visitors could come to church for the, the teaching uh, and for most of the service, but when it got to the Lord's Supper, they, they had to leave. They were shut out of the room. Only those who were baptised and committed members could be part of the meal. And because of this uh, strict practice, as you might imagine, there were uh, rumours that started up because nobody knew what, what really went on unless they were actually Christians themselves. One of the worst of these rumours started because uh, everybody knew that Christians rescued abandoned children. Something Christians were known for. Um, in the ancient world, uh, unwanted infants were tragically often left by their parents uh, outside by the road or in the countryside uh, so that they would die from exposure. Uh, it was awful. Basically just because the parents didn't want them or couldn't afford them. And so Christians, people who had been rescued by God, uh, they rescued these children and they would raise them as their own, the, the original pro-life movement. And they got quite a reputation for this. It was profoundly countercultural. It didn't make sense in a Greco-Roman approach to life. Christians were known for this People also knew that they used Jesus' words from John 6 where he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And there was one particularly sinister rumour that went around that Christians were rescuing these children just to sacrifice them in a cannibalistic meal. Now, that's not what was happening. We have no evidence that's what was going on. Christians were not eating children at all. They were actually just being faithful to Jesus by caring for abandoned children and celebrating the Lord's Supper. But it goes to show just how much of a scandal this meal caused, even from the earliest times. Christians were weird and strange people because they did things that didn't make sense, like rescuing babies and sharing this meal. So when my friend Tim asked me, well, what's going on? He's asking a really good question that lots of people have wrestled with for a long time. What would you say if this was your friend at church for the first time? What's going on? Why do we celebrate this meal? Lots of traditions and religions and cultures have, um, have uh, rituals around eating food together and, and sharing, sharing meals. But is it just kind of the Christian version of that or is there something special and distinct about this meal? What's, what's going on? I think on that occasion with Tim, I mumbled something about remembering Jesus' death but I wasn't really sure I'd nailed it. And I felt like there's, oh, there's, surely there's a bit more happening here, isn't there? What, what else is going on? But I, I couldn't really put it into words for him. So today we're asking Tim's question, what's the Lord's Supper all about? We're also asking that bigger question that we're thinking about in this series, Church for Life. How does the habit of participating in the Lord's Supper how does it form me as a person? How is it a formative habit? How does it shape my heart, my body, my mind, help me to live for Christ all through the week? <clears throat> so firstly, what's this meal all about? 
Uh, and to do that, we're going to look at how Jesus started this meal. Uh, Sarah read to us from Matthew. Uh, Jesus shares his last supper with his disciples. And that meal is the basis for our Lord's Supper. Did you notice that wasn't just any supper that he was having? It was a Passover meal. The Festival of Unleavened Bread. It was the Passover. It's very hard to understand the Lord's Supper without thinking about the Passover first. And that's why we had the Exodus reading to help us with the Passover. Uh, so a quick recap about the Passover from Exodus 12. You can have a look at Exodus 12, 21 to 28. I've got three questions. I need some audience participation. Uh, firstly, uh, what did every household have to do in the Passover? Sorry, Annette? Kill an animal. What, what animal particularly? Particularly a small lamb. Particularly a lamb that was just the right size for the number of people in the household. Spotless, uh, spotless lamb. And then with the blood, smear it on the doorpost, right? Why? why? Why were they doing this? What was the significance of it? Yeah, so it was an indicator that they were God's people and so the Lord's judgment would pass over them when he came to strike down the Egyptians, right? So the Hebrews have been in slavery in Egypt and this is God about to lead them out with Moses and, and they're going to go through the Red Sea and all of that. But then why did they have to keep celebrating the Passover every year after that? Right? I understand why we did it the first time when God was leading us out of Egypt. Why do we have to do it every year after that? As a memorial, what? Okay, to remind us. So there's actually this was a really significant event. We don't want to forget it. We need a memorial. It talks about a lasting ordinance, something we're going to do each week, each year. Sorry, uh, and it talks about teaching your children as well in the passage, uh, what God has done in delivering them. So imagine the scene for a moment in ancient Egypt. You're walking through the streets of a town in ancient Egypt and the air is thick with the smell of roasting lamb, right? Uh, you can see certain houses that have the sticky red blood running down the doorposts. You can see these large families gathered to uh, eat their unleavened bread without yeast and they're, they're dressed. They look like they're ready to go on a journey. As you walk through the streets, it's very clear to you who are the Hebrews and who are not, who, who the Egyptians and the others are. So one thing God is doing is using this Passover meal to mark out who his special people are, to, to set them apart from the Egyptians and so that they're ready to, to flee from Egypt. They're a chosen people in this meal. He also used it to teach them. The blood on the doorposts is showing them the power of a sacrificial death to save them from judgment. You might remember the plague that was coming that night was the death of the firstborn of all in Egypt. This awful climactic judgment on the Egyptians for enslaving the Hebrews and repeatedly refusing to let them go. But wherever a lamb has been killed and the blood on the doors, death did not take the firstborn because a lamb had died instead. God is making a point to them. A sacrificial death can save them from judgment. So when God feeds his people, he's doing two things at least. He, 
He's setting his people apart, marking them out as distinct from the world and he's teaching them. He's discipling them to live more faithful lives. So fast forward more than a thousand years and Jesus is sitting down to eat this Passover with his disciples. It's already a deeply significant meal with these, it's kind of heavy laden with ideas of sacrifice and deliverance from judgment. But Jesus gives the Passover a makeover. He gives it new meaning. He interprets it in at least four new ways. The first way, we're going to think about four different ways. Uh, The first way, and and Sam Kekovic would be very disappointed in this, lamb is off the menu. Right? Did you notice the lamb is a big deal in Exodus? Matthew doesn't mention the lamb at all. This meal is no longer about the lamb. I hope you've noticed that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, we need to get bread, but we don't get a lamb. Yeah. Uh, Annette is very faithful in setting up for us every week, and she's very grateful that we don't have to slaughter a lamb as part of the, the proceedings. Ridley are probably pretty happy about that too. And this meal is, is not about the meat and blood of a lamb. No, it's now about the one true lamb, the lamb that God provides. It's about the body and blood of Jesus, signified by the bread and the wine. It's Jesus' blood now that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Because it's his blood that ultimately brings deliverance from judgment for God's people. So when we celebrate this meal now, we don't sacrifice a lamb. We don't even re-sacrifice Jesus' body and blood. Because, like I say each time in the lead up, Christ has already offered the one true sacrifice for sins and obtained, obtained, past tense, obtained an eternal deliverance for his people. We don't need to re-sacrifice Jesus. The one sacrifice for all time is done. But we do remember his sacrifice. We remember his death for the forgiveness of our sins so that judgment will pass us over. And when I say remember, uh, I don't just mean we kind of call it back to mind, like you might go to the shops and remember uh, that you need to get toilet paper. No, we own it for ourselves. We put ourselves in the story, as it were. We confess our sins. We own his sacrifice for ourselves. We paint his blood on the doorpost of our lives. We eat this meal with our bodies, take him into ourselves because we are those saved by his sacrifice. As Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians in in verse 26, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look back to the cross. We look back to the cross and remember Jesus' death to deliver us from judgment. But we do more than just looking back in this meal. We proclaim his death until he comes. right? We also look forward as we eat this meal. When Jesus gave his disciples the cup at that last supper, Matthew records that he says, I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day uh, when I drink it new with you 
in, uh, in my Father's kingdom. Sorry, lost my place. I won't drink of this again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now remember, it's the night before his death. Jesus is about to be betrayed. You could kind of forgive him for kind of feeling a bit hopeless and despairing at this point. But no, he's driven by this hope, this confidence that one day he will drink anew with his disciples, with you in his kingdom. Jesus is thinking of that final banquet when God's kingdom is established over all the earth. Right, Everything is restored, every wrong and injustice put right. Heaven will come to earth and we will see Jesus in his beauty and power and glory. And on that day, we're not simply spectators in the stands. Right? The Bible actually says on that day we will be Jesus' bride. Beautiful, spotless, radiant, ready to be with him forever. And the wedding reception will be the party to end all parties. Jesus will drink with us and with all of God's people through the ages. So as you drink the wine at the Lord's Supper, you taste that strong, overpowering flavour or as the sweet nectar of the juice hits your tongue, let it remind you of our sweet, intoxicating hope that we have of one day drinking with Jesus, drinking anew with him. That's why as we prepare for the supper, we say together, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and you know the last bit, Christ will come again. We look forward to Christ's return as king, to the renewal of the whole world under him, every wrong being put right as we eat this supper. So we look back and remember the cross. We look forward to the wedding feast with Christ. Uh, Thirdly, in this meal, we meet with God, Father, Son and Spirit. A bit earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes the wine and the bread as a participation in the blood and body of Christ. In this meal, we participate in Christ. It's like it shows our unity with him. You and I are deeply connected to the Lord Jesus in this meal. It's not because he's physically present in the bread and the wine, like some people have said. It's because he is present with us already by his spirit. The spirit who lives in him also lives in us. In May uh, each year, 40 days after Easter, we remember Jesus' ascension, that he, uh, after his resurrection, he rose uh, and ascended to reign with his Father in heaven. And so as we begin the supper, I say, lift up your hearts and we lift them to the Lord because our Lord Jesus is seated and reigning on high. Ten days after the ascension each year, we celebrate Pentecost when Christ poured out his Spirit the same spirit who uh, lives in each of us is uh, also with Christ. He guarantees Christ's presence with us always. And so whenever we gather as God's people in response to his word, and particularly as we gather around the Lord's table, the spirit gathers us and makes Christ present to us, spiritually feeding us by faith to give us strength and encouragement in Christ. Now sometimes we uh, experience this in quite a profound, uh, in quite a profound way. It's like we really, we really feel it. 
be a strong sense of being known and loved by God. Sometimes you might not feel it as well. But we can trust that God is at work by his spirit, strengthening us, encouraging us, because that's what he's promised to do in this meal. And so the bread and the wine then become a, a tangible sign for us, like God reassuring us that Christ is with us, showing us that we meet with God in this meal. And just as Jesus encouraged his followers to feed on him in John 6, so we feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Not because he's in the bread, but because he's already in our hearts by his spirit, nourishing and feeding us. So we look back to the cross, we look forward to the feast to come. We look here because Christ is with us by the power of his spirit. And then fourthly, this is a shared meal. We don't eat on our own, we do it together. It's a family meal. Christmas lunch with my extended family is usually a joyful time. Everyone brings some food to share. Uh, My aunt and uncle probably buy the chicken and the, the ham and maybe some seafood. We might bring some salad or some pastries. My grandmother uh, will often make her famous rumbles. And if we're really lucky, my mum makes her ice cream plum pudding, which is just perfect. Uh, There's always this amazing spread and by the end of the day, we are totally stuffed, telling ourselves we don't need half as much food next year, but secretly just kind of grateful for what everyone's brought as well. But can you imagine if we all brought that food but then we didn't share it with each other. If my uncle and aunt just ate all the chicken, right? My mum kept all the ice cream plum pudding to herself and my grandmother just gorged herself on the rumbles. That wouldn't be a meal to bring our family together. That would create division and envy and sickness, right? Sadly, that's what was happening at the Lord's Supper in Corinth. Did you pick that up in the the reading from 1 Corinthians in chapter 11? Paul takes, takes them to task about this in verse 20. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper, he says. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Their supposed Lord's Supper, it seems to be like a BYO affair where the rich are feasting and the poor are starving. There's no love for one another, no concern for each other's needs. Their supposed Lord's Supper, it's no longer about Jesus' love and his act of self-sacrifice. For these Corinthians, it's not about serving others, it's just about serving me. It's about getting fed. Where's the love? Now, I've been guilty of this myself, not at the Lord's Supper, but at the family dinner table at home. As a uni student, I treated it just as a place to get fed, to quickly eat my dinner and then uh, rush out the door to whatever else I had planned for my exciting evening. And so I wasn't there for my family. I wasn't there for my siblings. For my, to, I wasn't there to celebrate my sister's efforts at the sports carnival or my brother's, brother's work on his project at school. Certainly wasn't there for the washing up. But family meals, they're not meant to be takeaway 
events, are they? Family meals are for listening and sharing, for caring for each other deeply, for building those deep relationships. So how much more this family meal that brings together not our biological family but our eternal family? Often in our Lord's Supper services, before we eat together, we exchange a greeting of peace. We affirm to each other that because we have peace with God, we're at peace with one another before we eat together. On the flip side, if there was somebody who's actively harming or abusing other members of the church, it might be right for them not to participate in this meal until there's genuine repentance and reconciliation. Because you can't just paper over the cracks at a family meal I said that Christmas is usually a joyful time in my family. Christmas is also the time, uh, famously, where families have big fights. We so want to be a big, happy family for Christmas, we try to paper over the cracks. But if there's been hurt or betrayal or, or deep division, conflict in a family, eating together can feel fake and forced. It can spill over into fights and arguments unless there's been that genuine repentance and forgiveness and healing. The the Lord's Supper is about our unity and our unity should not be fake or forced. Eating together in the Lord's Supper, therefore, is a constant challenge to us to work for peace where there's disunity in the body of Christ. It's like this meal keeps pulling us back together. We, We eat alongside others who might be very different from us. Maybe we can't stand their politics or what they do for work or their attitude. But as we share in Christ's death for us, it's like God is teaching us hospitality. We learn to share a table with others who are not like us, to consider their needs. And hopefully this carries over into our dinners after church and into our meals through the week. Sometimes as we come up for communion, we have our head and our eyes bowed. That's a sign of respect and reverence, perhaps, as we reflect on Christ's death for us. But sometimes maybe you look up and you catch someone else's eye. And there's something right about that too. This is a meal for looking each other in the eye as equals, for working for unity and and hospitality across our differences. I do my best to name you, each, uh, each of you, as I serve. Because in this meal, we are each seen and known by God as well as by each other. This is a meal for looking around to our brothers and sisters as well. So we look back to the cross. Remember that Jesus has died for our deliverance. We look forward to the new creation, the great feast with Christ to come. We look here and enjoy Christ's presence with us. And we look around, affirming our brothers and sisters. Uh, Finally, uh, and just briefly, how does participating in this meal form us then, shape us, to live as God's people through the week? Uh, I think I've given you a few hints already. The Lord's Supper, like the Passover, is God feeding his people, right? And so that means he's setting us apart as distinct from the world and he's discipling us to live faithful lives.
as we participate in this meal, we are marked out as God's special people. We remember the two key events of our life. Right? A little bit like a birthday party reminds you of your birth and celebrates your birth. Well, so this meal celebrates and reminds us excuse me, of our new birth, of the day that Jesus gave his life for you on the cross, that key event in your life. And secondly, it teaches, it reminds us of the day that he'll return in glory, when we'll dine with him face to face. It's like a, a pre-anniversary of our ultimate wedding. This is our story. It, it's Jesus' story. And as we share this meal with him, it becomes our story too. So, we participate with integrity. If this is not your story, if you don't look to Jesus' death on the cross, then don't just follow the crowd to participate. In fact, I'd say don't participate. Right? Unless this is your story of Jesus' death and resurrection for you, unless you depend on him as your Lord and your Saviour. This is a meal for those who are ready to meet with God through faith in Christ. It also means, I think, that kids are welcome to participate in this meal. Here's what I mean. Um, Baptism is the marker of entering into God's people. So children are baptised and we're treating them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Then they're welcome at his table too. And we'll help them to continue to grow in faith and in understanding of this meal, even as we continue to grow in our faith and understanding too. This meal also teaches us to love one another, to show hospitality to the needs of others. How could we celebrate the Lord's self-sacrificial love and then fail to love one another? This meal spurs us to care for each other, to provide food and friendship to each other, even at a cost to ourselves. How could we come to Christ's table freely open to us by the grace of God and not also open our own tables, even to strangers, at least to our brothers and sisters? So why not make a plan for for this week? Make a plan, chat to your housemate or or those you live with if you need to. Make a plan to share a meal with someone else beyond your household this week. I know lots of us do this already, which is great, but in an individualistic culture that kind of encourages us just to retreat into the security and isolation of our own four walls, we need to keep pushing ourselves a bit, putting ourselves out there, to share food with our neighbours, with our sisters and brothers in Christ perhaps even with strangers. Because we don't stay at the table. After the meal, we pray together. Father, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. There's there's Romans 12 again from last week. Living sacrifice through Jesus Christ our Lord. Send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. We recommit ourselves to serving God in our lives, to opening our tables, to proclaiming the death of Christ so that others too, like my friend Tim, might come to know Jesus' saving death and resurrection and find their place at his table. 
join us at the table of the King. So sisters and brothers, as we gather at the table soon, remember to look back to the cross, look forward to the wedding feast, look here, Christ is with us, look around to your sisters and brothers as we feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Let's pray before we sing. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus, for his body that was broken for us, for the forgiveness and deliverance we find in his death. Thank you that he offered his perfect, sinless body. He offered himself as a sacrifice for our disobedient, sinful bodies. And thank you that in this meal you not only feed us but you assure us and encourage us. You teach us again who we are and of your deep and faithful love to us. So we thank you for this meal. In Jesus' name, Amen. So let's uh, stand. We're going to continue reflecting on the Lord's Supper as we sing this song together, Behold the Lamb. Let's stand and sing.